Well, welcome to this edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round, which is about as topical as they come. and say, this is a first, this is three firsts. We've never done a Who's Round at my house. Uh, we've never done one uh, that is going out the day after it's recorded. Some people have been dead by the time their Who's Round goes out. <laughs> oh, you know. well, you never so, Look after yourself. And, <laughs> and there's never been one about the latest episode that's just been on. Oh, so yes. it's a number of, so the person, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to ask the person who's responsible for three firsts, tell me who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Hello, I am Julie Hesmentalsh. I appeared in uh, this week's Doctor Who, Kublam, as Judy Maddox, head of people. <laughs> and uh, and I am round at uh, Toby's house because um, it was convenient for us both today. Well, so it's, bless uh, you. it's been great. Bless you. You've been very kind and you always do things. Well, we'll get on to the amount of things that you do. But first, the <laughs> last time I saw you, before I saw you in the coming next trailer, and I haven't on your Facebook, <laughs> uh, just something you need to tell me. Uh, we were on a, tr- we just both got off a train at Euston and you said, oh yeah, Chris, Chris is doing Doctor Who and I've, you know, I, w- I really want to be in it. So obviously your wish came true. So had you... Had you been banging on the door? No, it was absolutely brilliant, actually. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of telling this story because it's so dripping in privilege. It's, <laughs> it's quite uncomfortable. But I will tell it because it was not always so and it will not always be so. So this was a moment in my life where I was truly like, oh, this is it. This is, this is the secret of career happiness. This is where I am. So I was in the dressing room at Royal Exchange. I was doing a play called Wit. And I'd had the phone call um, offering me Broadchurch, which, of course, Chris Chibnall was the lead writer and producer on. So there'd been a bit of to and fro about it because I didn't know much about that role at the time. And uh, me and my agent really wanted to make sure that it was right for me and that the way they were going to tell that very particular story about sexual assault was in a way that sat comfortably with my own ideas and principles. So so we thought the best thing to do was to have a conversation with Chris himself, which was quite nerve-wracking, but he rang me when I was in my dressing room and we had a chat about it and what the series would be about, etc. And, of course, it had already been announced that he was going on to talk to who. And so he said to me, I'd really, really love you to come on to Broadchurch and play this part. Um, we're not seeing anyone else for it. And if you say yes, I'll get you into Doctor Who as well. <laughs> <laughs> like I needed an extra oh, kind of like bit of bribery. I was like, oh, well then. <laughs> All right, I'll take part in your award-winning like ITV series if you give me a part in Doctor Who as well. So yeah, so, so he did make that promise to me a long time ago. And um, and so, yeah, so so when the new series came out, nothing was said for quite a while. And I was thinking, oh, I hope he hasn't forgotten. I hope he hasn't forgotten. <laughs> I really, really want to be in it. And then the call came through and I was chuffed a bit. So, so yeah, so it was actually a very straightforward process, really, because I'd always wanted to be in it. Mm-hmm. And I'd met Stephen Moffat when I was doing a play in London. And I, oh, I'd given him, I mean, I'd given him the hard sell and nothing ever came of that, so... So I've waited, I've bided my time. And I suppose when Russell was doing it, you were still in oh, Coronation yeah, Street. Oh yeah, very much so still in Coronation yeah. To... yeah. Yeah. Right, so, well, timing. 
You've got that, and you're in Kablam, which is and in this series, and in this series, which is so groundbreaking on so many levels, that I'm actually glad that I waited. You know, it's like always loved it, but this for me to be in this series was particularly special because it's the Thirteenth Doctor and it's Geordie. I think she's absolutely brilliant. I've loved the stories they've been telling in it. I've loved, you know, the I know that it's divided people, but I've loved the the you know very strong sense of social message that's come over in this series through the historic pieces and the sci-fi uh, episodes. And um, so yeah, yeah, I feel like it it's, it was a perfect one for me to be part of. But an interesting development since your episode was on because I think you had you mentioned something on Digital Spy when you know that there has been the suggestion from certain areas of the press going oh Doctor Who is politically correct and I think you've yeah. done a riposte to that saying yes, you know but interestingly the voices now uh, uh, interesting Kablam has now um, had some voices because and it, it may be interesting to look at where we are sort of politically and in terms of comment commentary is that. The criticism that has been in one particular quarter of Kablam is that it didn't condemn Amazon and sweatshops and that actually Doctor Who's job should be to take down corporations and actually the corporation got out of it quite lightly and it was it was the lad, which I thought was an interesting twist because I think Doctor Who's often done stories about big evil corporations. It's that kind of show. Yeah, yeah. But interestingly now, so th- so actually the, the people who don't usually criticise Doctor Who, the sort of liberal left, are now being quite vocal saying, well, Doctor Who should have should have been critiquing Amazon, not being That's nice dead interesting. Amazon. I haven't read I haven't read uh, any of that actually. That is really interesting because I the the reason I was really attracted to the story of it was because I felt like it was very much uh, a commentary, a social commentary on companies like Amazon and about the um you know, the computerization of work and, and the future of work and how the workforce will become, you know, much more monetized by it being sort of, you know, mechanical rather than being uh, people-led. And I thought that that was the thrust of it, really, is that, you know, that, that people's jobs will be eroded to the point of almost non-existence and that we must fight to keep that going. And actually, I thought that in the end, and, and it was my husband who said this, that, that he felt that in the end of it, that it was quite an interesting little take on jihadism, actually. You know, because because of the because of Charlie being the one at the end who sort of says, right, this is I'm going to blow the whole thing up. I don't care. People are expendable in this larger, in this bigger picture. That actually, you know, that was proved to be, you know, the the message of it really transcended that. Of the of the the Amazon the warehouse kind of the the workforce thing and was about no because what you didn't take into account is that you would fall in love and the way that you felt about Kira is the way that people will be feeling when they lose their loved ones and that Dan's daughter will be feeling and all these other people that 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 human you can't think of human beings as a, a mass that need to be protected without thinking about the individuals and the loss that will be involved. And and I thought that that was really cleverly and significantly done, actually. So I, I feel like it had a lot to say on many different levels. So I hadn't heard that criticism, and I think that's interesting because I feel like um, it might have been a bit heavy-handed to go in on Amazon, really, in that context, because we kind of all know what that is. Mm. And it's like, and this is the future, and it's about how you could possibly change it. Well, it hadn't occurred to me because I thought it was a twist. Because I think I thought it would have been quite predictable if 
it had been the evil. The, you know, we we all know Just what we think about it. Was a, but, yeah. but but the, it was the fact that you it was the the radicalized young yes. man. Yeah. And and actually, who who whose whose ideology came from an understandable place. Hundred percent. But his way of carrying it out yeah. is where he loses yeah. sight of what yeah. you know. It's yeah. how you fight your battles, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, completely. And that and that beautiful speech from the doctor about that, about people, human beings and feelings, you know, that's kind of... I thought that was really beautifully done. And then you have, the, you know, that brilliant... Uh, you know, the, the, the monster... The, 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 the bad thing is bubble wrap, you know. It's <laughs> bubble yeah, wrap, yeah, which yeah. is as, as Doctor who an idea. It's, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. And you'll never see bubble wrap in the same way again, you know, yeah. which is one of those beautiful things where every time you're about to pop it, you'll remember that episode and think, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so Jodie had obviously worked with on uh, Broadchurch... Um, so when she was announced as the Doctor, did you did that suddenly all sort of make sense to you, or did, did it have been a bit of a surprise? Oh, it was absolutely brilliant because I'd seen her the week before. So she was in Manchester promoting Trust Me, this other ITV show she'd done. So we met up for lunch, and uh, and I very rarely see Jodie because she lives in London, and um, so we'd met up, and uh, we had a lovely chat. And I said, oh, "What are you up to at the moment?" She was absolutely nothing. Nothing, got nothing lined up. Yeah, it's really quiet time. And I was like, oh, something will come up, you know. I just had that one of those actuary chats. And um, and then it was a week afterwards, and it was literally a week afterwards, that I saw on the front of one of the papers a photograph of her, and it said that she was odds-on favourite. And at the, until that point, I hadn't heard any mention of her name at all. And so I texted her and said, Judy, are you, are you the new doctor? during the paper is like odds on favourite and she didn't get back to me and I was like <gasps> A up <laughs> and then we watched the uh, the unveiling of course the trailer and uh, and sure enough it was there and she got back to me straight away and she must have done so like everybody I was just like I'm really sorry I couldn't tell anyone it was all it was awful it was torture but I couldn't have been more happy because she's such a brilliant human being she's so no nonsense she's so down to earth she's so funny I think you can see that, you know, and, and traditionally, you know, Geordie's always played, you know, real English roses, real kind of like, you know, very, she, she plays tragedy very, very well. So she, she's played a lot of those roles in Broadchurch, especially, you know, which she's probably most well known for. So to see her, you know, sort of in this very smart, funny role has just been joy to me. And I think people have really liked her, haven't they? It seems mm. to me that, you know, whatever people's issues with the series have been, you know, that people generally, apart from the real idiots, have really come out in, you know, in favour of her and of like what she's doing with it. I don't think anybody could have predicted, or maybe they could have done, was how good is Bradley Walsh? You know, extraordinary. Yeah. And, and has brilliant. really taken... The, the nation have taken him to their heart, yeah, I think. Yeah, I love all three com uh, companions. I think they're all brilliant. I think they work really well together. And yeah, and I was a little bit... I was a bit confused when I heard there were going to be three companions. I thought that might be a little bit too watered down. You know, that chemistry thing that the Doctor has always traditionally had with his companion. I mean, I know there's been more than one before, but, but, but three seemed a lot. Um, I wasn't quite sure how Bradley would fit into it. I mean, I love Bradley. I worked with him on Curry, you know, but I was just like, oh, I can't really... I, I, I was very surprised by it. And it's worked a treat. Mm. And I think he's wonderful in it. You know, there's that moment... I mean, of course, he's funny. Everybody knows that Bradley's funny and daft as a brush, but moments of real kind of, you know, gravitas and feeling in it like when he lost his wife, but also subsequently as well in the partition episode and stuff. And... 
Really beautiful, really great. Yeah, he's working a treat. Yeah. And he's brilliant to work with. Yeah. I mean, he's a nightmare. <laughs> too, what, too funny. Oh, yeah, yeah. And just like an, a, a, an incredibly fast brain. So he can just like talk all the way down to the count, you know, and just like be messing around and taking a mic. And, and you're just like, Bradley, I've got, a lot, I've got a lot of very technical things to say. You've got to stop. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was brilliant working with them all. And how is it doing a, you know, a show that, that's got, you know, you've done a lot of television, but, but, but Doctor Who is unique in the sense that it has it doesn't have a longer schedule or more money than any other program and yet it has to take you to different planet and space and time <laughs> yeah. week. so i mean yeah. how how is it on the floor doing is it quite a quick turnover um yeah not as quick as cory you know so so yeah it's not it's not massively quick i mean i think it's it's i think it's quite hard for the for the regulars for the doctor and the companions because they are filming uh, a lot simultaneously you know that I think next week's episode was very very complicated and complex both in its story and the shooting of it and they had a lot of things to contend with weather-wise and, and all sorts um, so there was a lot of refilming and, and picking things up on that at the same time as we were filming Kablam and they were getting ready to go to Mallorca I assume yes to film Partition I think because um, it was all filmed out of order mm. so so I think it, it, it's quite fast for them to be having to think, you know, in multiple episodes, a bit like on Corey, but as a guest artist, it, it felt quite um, quite reasonable. I mean, the thing the, the thing is, is the amount of angles, you know, because on Corey it's multi-camera, so you just have to do it once. You know, this is single camera and, and done, you know, very... And to get everything in, especially in something like Kablam, where there was quite a lot of action, you know, with robots and stuff, which is... You know, it was a little bit more prosaic than I would have imagined. I thought there'd be a lot more computer-generated, like, big stuff. But no, 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 like, Twirly, the robot, was just a little robot with two gentlemen who'd made him <laughs> standing by, you know, to, like, bring him in. And, um, and yeah, and the actual delivery robots were, were just men with heads on. Yeah. <laughs> that had to be replaced by one, obviously, when I pulled his when head off. When you pulled his head yeah. off, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so yeah, it was it was kind of like a, it felt quite old school actually. <laughs> quite that's, fun that's way. reassuring in a way. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. I really liked it. And of course, you know, the massive I hope I'm not spoiling too much magic here, but you know, the massive shot of the army, which looks incredible, you know, the army of um Kablam uh Postman was was just a line of them. There were about seven of them, you know, and that was all yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuck in. In just a big empty room, which was funny. So seeing it was amazing. I yeah. loved all the shoot stuff as well, the delivery shoot stuff, you know, the roller coaster stuff. That were all wonderful. I loved the episode actually. I thought it was a really great episode. And I felt as I was watching it that it would be one that would be pleasing um to people who, you know, have who've loved Doctor Who for a long time. You know, it felt like it had a lot of the elements of yeah, like, you know absolutely. old style Doctor Who. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, Doctor Who aside, take us back, Julie. What, what, how did you end up in this ridiculous profession? What was the inspiration and how did you go about it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the tale as old as time, I suppose. You know, at school I had a teacher who like, took me on and made me do um, English speaking board exams when I were about nine. 
as you can see, it really worked out like that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but we had to like perform poems and stuff, and I really talked to it and really loved it. And then just a series of really good teachers who encouraged me. And then very specifically at um, Accrington College, I'm from Accrington, um, when I did my A-level theatre studies, just a really, really amazing and inspirational teacher called Martin Cosgriff, who, who'd been an actor himself and had turned to teaching. And he just made us all feel like it was possible you know, in, in a really real way that we could, I mean, we all we were all young people who loved drama, but I don't think any of us felt like it, we could necessarily make a life out of it and a living out of it. And he just made it seem really, really possible. And he got us all into drama school. I mean, there were, like, scores of us went to drama school from his few years in, oh. that, in that post. And, I mean, when I went to Lambda in 1988, there were five of us from Accrington College there at the same time, which is, of course... Blimey ludicrously disproportionate <laughs> you know, for a small <laughs> industrial town in north of England and um, he was just brilliant and then Lambda and then you know as I've said many times I was just very very lucky to live in a time when you know access was much easier so I was able to go to drama school on a full local authority grant and a maintenance grant so I not only got my fees paid I also got you know subsistence yeah subsistence as well and we all did so so that enabled me to go to drama school and then really crucially I was able to stay in London afterwards and run a theatre company with a group of because I didn't get an agent after drama school I didn't get an agent for years after drama school and um, and a group of us set up a theatre company in London under the tutelage of a, a, a Lambda teacher who had previously uh, set up the first multiracial theatre company in South Africa in the apartheid years. So whenever we were sort of like, oh, well, you know, how are we going to build a theatre? That's not possible. We're all like 21 and skint and on the dole. And he'd be like, well, you know, I built a multiracial theatre company in apartheid South Africa. I think you'd be all right. And like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite hard. We're like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. So we just wrote to every famous pe person we could think of. And um, unbelievably, they sent us money. It was kind of like analogue crowdfunding. We just hand-wrote letters and got thousands of pounds and built a theatre with our bare hands under a block of flats in Paddington. And I worked there for two, three years, um, cleaning the toilets, making the cakes for the cafe, running the box office and doing plays. And it was like an apprenticeship that I couldn't have dreamt of. It's from there that I got my agents. And I did that purely because I was supported by the state. I was signing on. I was claiming housing benefit. Everything was being paid for. And you'll hear this from, you know, all the great pop groups, you know, in that era, in the early 90s, you know, like Pulp and Oasis. They all, they all started by, you know, being on the dole and getting together with a group of friends and making stuff. And I feel incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have lived in that time and to have been able to do that. And from that, I'd started getting little bits of telework and little bits of theatre and then, you know, you know, as luck would have it, I got Corey when I was 27. I was only 27. Wow. Yeah, and, um, and that changed my life completely, so... But interesting, of course, is that... Because I remember it at the time, and again, the press coverage of that was 
what's this soap opera doing now? Yeah. This is sensationalist. For the, for the listener who might not know, because Doctor Who and Coronation Street have an odd relationship, because when Doctor Who was at the nadir of its popularity, it was put on opposite to Coronation Street in the 80s, and that was seen as a BBC plot to kill off Doctor yeah. Who. So Coronation yeah. Street and Doctor Who are not necessarily the best of friends. That's a good bedfellow. And yeah, they have a lot of like, <laughs> mutual fans, this, don't this, they? This, this, this house is like the, the television schedules of the 1980s. <laughs> Oh, half like Coronation that. Street, like half that. Doctor It works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and and I rem- and I remember, you know, you it was seen, and it will be interesting to talk about this as it is now, because, but 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 it was seen as a sensationalist thing in it by in some corners of the press, and yet when you left years later, you left as a much loved character who whose storylines were largely nothing to do with the fact that the character was transgender. transgender. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting you talking about Broadchurch and you having to to really see what they were going to do with a, um, a sexual assault storyline. I mean, did you have misgivings when you when you were told, well, there's going to be a transgender thing going well, on in Corrie? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a strange thing, actually, because, I mean, you can ask anyone who was my friend during that period that... So between Arts Threshold, the theatre company that um, I helped set up, and getting Corrie, you know, there was a lot of, like, knocking around doing bits and bobs of jobs. And we'd have big conversations. I lived in a shared house with, you know, a group of subsequently really successful people. <laughs> and, um, but we were all, like, you know, dossing around watching Friends, you know, and <laughs> kind of just trying to make ends meet. And we used to have conversations about where we'd like to see ourselves in a few years. And I always said that I wanted to be in a soap opera, playing a character that would change things, that would change people's perceptions about a certain issue. And I promise you that's the truth. It sounds so far-fetched now. But my friends still say to me, I still cannot believe that that's what you wanted and this happened. And I, and I couldn't really think what it would be. And I, and I couldn't think that it would be in Corrie because Corrie never really did social issues in that way. EastEnders did and Brookside definitely mm. did, but, but not Corrie. So I never imagined it would be Corrie, even though that would be my natural bedfellow. Um, so when the part came in and the casting director got me in the room and told me what it was, I immediately, perhaps quite naively, thought, this is it. This is the, this is the part that I've wanted and waited for. I think that the, the actual you know, motives of, of Corrie at that time weren't completely honourable because what I found out subsequently is that it was going to be a joke storyline that Roy, who was quite an oddball character, was going to have a series of dates and I was the first of them and he would fall for me and then the sort of denouement would gag. be like, yeah, yeah, the big gag, the big punchline would be, oh, I'm a bloke in the parlance of the time, do you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and that would end it and then he would have a series of other dates. And um, I didn't know that. And when I went in for the meeting, I was like, really, I'd, I'd done a lot of research. This was like pre, like, being able to look things up on the internet. I just went to like Frontline Books in Manchester, which is like a big political bookshop in Manchester, and like got all these books about sort of like, by really radical trans people in America and everything, and very unhaley, you know. But I, I, I found out as much as I could about the issue and made sure that I was armed with the facts. And it, for me, it was never ever going to be a joke I, I knew that I would be representing a group of people who didn't really have very much of a voice at all at that mm. time and I was 27 you know I'm full of kind of like vim and vigor and political kind of like you know 
wide-eyed optimism and hope. And, and so I, I just took that with me. And what happened was, which none of us could have anticipated and that nobody can ever manufacture, is that there was real chemistry between the characters, between Roy and Haley, and between myself and David Nielsen. We just knew as soon as we met that we were just like, we could work together brilliantly and, and the public really took to it. So after the initial storm of it, of like, what a Coronation Street doing, which of course, Corey will have loved, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And, um, and there was a lot of criticism from, from various transgender groups completely understandably because they thought oh what is this going to be and rightly worried about that and also worried that um that that me as a as a cis woman a non-trans woman had been cast in the role now I never had an issue with that at the time I mean obviously I wouldn't have would I but uh, <laughs> but I really genuinely felt at the time that it would have been unbearable pressure on a trans actress to go in and play that part the prurience from the press mm. And the and the the language and the way that people talked about trans people at that time, I think it would have been absolutely unbearable. There wouldn't have been enough support available or possible for for a trans person, an unknown person, to go in and play that. Um, so I was just like, okay, well, you've got me, and I will and I will absolutely represent you, you know, with as much honour as I can, I, I promise you that. And so I became like a sports person and, and an ambassador for them. And they very soon realised that I took it really, really mm. seriously and that I was an LGBT, you know, um, ally. And so, so yeah, so it worked out. And, and it was an amazing lesson in how popular culture really, really can shift things massively in mm. a society. You know, and I... I don't think it can be underestimated what that relationship, not not necessarily just the character of Hayley, but that relationship with Roy meant in terms of shifting public perceptions about that issue because people really, really wanted him to be all right. They really, really hated it when people bullied him. They really wanted him to be able to get married. They really wanted um, Hayley to be able to go through passport control without being bullied, you know, because her, her passport had her, you know, birth gender on it and... I think that, you know, people really got behind them and therefore got behind the issue. And very quickly, you know, things started to move through Parliament and we were thanked in Parliament and named in Parliament for having changed things and shifted public perceptions. And that will always be one of the proudest things of my life that that happened because of that. Not not solely because of it, of course, because there were people on ground level working for years at grassroots level like there is with any issue, trying to change things, trying to make things better. But it just kind of like, it influenced... It, people had a trans person in the living room three, four, five eventually times a week. And when you know someone and care about them, then, you know, prejudice falls away and that's how you do it. And... So I'm told by the end of it, by the end of my time at Corrie, um, that issue had had kind of fallen away a little bit, you know, but then it came back in the final storyline because that was Haley's decision to take her own life was because she was worried about becoming confused as the cancer took hold and that she would start to think of herself in her past life and she didn't want to go there. So they tied it in really nicely. And then I left and I feel like it was just unbelievably timely when I left because it just happened at the point where there were a lot of trans actors coming through 
and there was a lot of conversation about um, using trans actors rather than cis actors mm. playing trans and I think that Hayley would have very very quickly become a bit of an embarrassing anachronism right that's interesting and I feel like I just went and it was just then that Cucumber came out and Banana and they had that great story with Bethany yeah. Bethany Black and they had to search really really hard for Bethany you know because I think that they would have a couple of years before have gone we'll just get a cis actor into play it you know and you know, with the best will in the world, they would have just thought, we can't find anyone. And mm. they, they they fought hard and they found it because it, the time was right. And now, of course, we've got Annie Wallace in Hollyoaks. Play, he, was the first, he was the first trans actor to play a trans character in a soap. And Annie had been my advisor for years on Corrie. You know, she just got in touch with me and wrote to the Radio Times like in the early days when Hayley was still getting a lot of flack from the trans pressure group saying this character really speaks to me. I feel like she is like me and, and it's great to see myself on screen. Yeah. Corrie got her in as an advisor and then all these years later, she's having the time of her life on Hollywood oh, now. Yes, yeah. And it's just been a, this amazing, everything's just happened at the right moments and and everything's fallen into place in that way. And, uh, and yeah, I just feel so proud of it. And it is one of those things that it wasn't brought in as an issue. It was brought in as a joke, I think, you know. Wow. And it's kind of, it just transcended what any of us hoped for, really. And and then, you you know, you went out on interest. So when you decided to leave, I mean, you, you know, you're saying about the, the change in perceptions was a sort of a byproduct that the timing was right. But you as, a, as, a, as an actor, um, you know, you were established, you're well-known in a part. As we know, you can be the most successful person in a part that's in people's living rooms five days a week and escaping that can be a nightmare yeah. so it's not just do I leave the security of a regular job that most mm. actors don't have is is this it is the yeah. you know is anybody going to give me work after yeah. this so did you you know, that must have been quite a big dilemma yeah yeah it was it was it was massive and it took me by surprise really because I'd always said oh you know I'll be here forever if they'll have me you know when people when new people came into the show I mean, Debbie Rush, who played Anna Windass, said to me, when I told her I was going, she said, I can't believe the first thing you said to me was, I'm Julie, they'll carry me out of here in a box. <laughs> <laughs> I intend to be here for the 100th anniversary. I was so happy there. I loved it. I loved that job. And, um, and you know, I've been coasting for quite a bit, you know, because you can in Corrie, you know, you get your big storylines and everyone remembers Hayley coming into the show and everyone remembers Hayley leaving the show. But in between that, there was a lot of me just, you know pottering around in Underworld, you know, and, and not doing very much, and which was great. You know, I was having a really lovely life bringing up my kids. And and um, and I, I took some time out to do a play called Black Roses, which I'd been asked to do specifically because um, it was about Sophie Lancaster, who's the young woman who was murdered in a park near to where I grew up uh, because she was she was dressed uh, as a goth. She, she you know, she, she, had, she was from an alternative culture, her and her boyfriend, and they were... They were kicks and stamped on in a park and, and her boyfriend survived and Sophie died from her injuries afterwards. And um, an enormous set up her foundation and her memory, you know, partly to um, educate people about alternative cultures, but also to sort of get it, get alternative cultures on the hate crime legislation because it was a hate crime because they didn't like that these young people were different. And uh, Simon Armitage wrote a beautiful um, radio play and it was a cycle of poems as if spoken by Sophie 
interspersed with um, interviews with Sylvia and mum and uh, and it was like a massive massive thing on Radio 4 and people you know really really affected people and they decided to make a stage play of it and have an actor playing Sylvia and speaking her words verbatim and Sylvia I knew a little bit and had been involved in the foundation a little bit already and, and Sylvia really wanted me to play that part to play her so had it not been something so massive and so personal I probably wouldn't have taken time off to do something because I had young kids and I was like, if, yeah, if I want to take time off, I'm going to spend it with my family. And But because it was such a big deal to her and it's such an honour to be asked, I took some time off. Corrie very kindly gave me time off and I did it at the Royal Exchange with um, Rachel Austin, who'd played Sophie in the radio play as well. And um, and it was during doing that, really, that I realised. I mean, I was so out of practice doing theatre. I was just like, I was so used to the speed of telly. You know, like, if, if, if I was given a note, I felt like I was doing it wrong because you just don't really get many notes when you're doing curry. You know, you just do it and go on. And it's like, so if they said, why, why don't you try it this way? I'd be like, oh, God, I'm doing it really I, it was a It was a muscle that was so, so, so out of, out of practice. And, um, yeah, and I just, well, I just fell in love with it again. And it really made me think, oh... Oh, this is something that I still have got in me. I still want to do other things and tell other stories, you know. And so I sat with it and thought about it a lot, really long and hard. It weren't something that I took, um, and it wasn't a decision I took easily or or lightly at all. Talked to everybody in my life, my family, my close friends, really asked them their opinion about it. Talked to people who'd already left Corrie, like uh, Catherine Kelly, who's a really good friend of mine. And really surprisingly absolutely across the board and I was really really shocked by it everybody said do it do it now's the time if if you don't do it now you'll never do it and if you're feeling these things do it you're an actor go on go on act go and do some of this stuff and I was quite taken aback because I thought people would be like what are you thinking (laughs) do you not remember the hard years you know you've got a family you've got this you know and and I and, and I really thought about it and then I just in the, it was just after New Year, and it was the day that they changed producers at Corrie. Actually, Phil Collinson was leaving, and Stuart was coming in, and I went and uh, and I just said, I'm 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 going, and Stuart was immediately like, I cannot believe you you've told me this on my first day. <laughs> my my girlfriend's going to be absolutely furious. <laughs> she loves your character, and then but then immediately, you know, eyes lit up you know, we might have to kill you. <laughs> and I was like, I knew that. Because I knew that if David didn't want to leave, there's absolutely no way that Hayley and Roy would ever split up. So I knew that that would be. And they were very, very lovely in giving me this beautiful and long and really gorgeous leaving story. But issue led again. I mean, issue you're talking about, for again, for the, for the listener that might not know, um, you know, it wasn't just a soap death. It was a soap... A, 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 a choice to end a life rather than yeah. rather than live with the condition that's eventually going to kill you and yeah. the pain and all of that. Yeah. So you're suddenly having to be on this morning sort of talking, justifying, yeah. you know, not just playing a part, but justifying the national conversation yeah. that is being had as a result yeah. of the television programme. Yeah, yeah, and it was, and it was at a moment when that was, you know, going through the courts as well. It was a massive moment. And uh, so, yeah, and also... You know, the pancreatic cancer thing, you know, because it was a cancer that that is now getting a lot more uh, conversation around it. But at that time, pancreatic cancer was something that very few people knew about. No funding 
at all, very low survival rates. Pancreatic cancer charities, you know, really struggling to raise awareness. And that coincided with, um, who's now a lovely friend of mine, um, Maggie Watts, setting up a petition uh, to try and get more awareness and funding for pancreatic cancer. And because of the storyline, we managed to get that that uh, petition to 100,000 signatures, which got us into Parliament to get it debated in Parliament. And I went with it for that. So there was all that as well that people don't talk about as much as the right to die ending, mm. you know, which was much more sort of like controversial and, and big. But I felt really, really proud that we'd managed to get that into the national conversation, have people talk about that in their homes again. And uh, so, yeah, and it was, and also, I think what was really, really special about it is that in, in soap in particular, you know, you never get long relationships. You don't in any drama. You know, if you watch a short drama, you know, you, you care about people for over four or five, sometimes six episodes. And that's enough to fall in love with characters and care about them. But like over years and years, you really, really get to know characters and really care about them. And it's very, very unusual for a soap couple to be together mm. for that whole time you know you know what it's like it's storyline fodder you've got to like get people split up divorced back together whatever you know and it's like and there's only a few like Jack and Vera you know not that I am comparing us to Jack and Vera in any way but but you know it's like that that really that's a big thing for two characters in a soap to be together for 16 years yeah and then to see them part through death is like a huge thing and it really was you know people really really responded to it you know it was a it was a big thing it was a big thing for me a big thing for all of us actually you know it's a filming those lost scenes was like quite a huge like moment in my life because that was directed by Kay Patrick wasn't it yeah the very last one was yeah yeah who yeah. had been an actress who was in Doctor Who twice in the 60s I know uh, I didn't know that you <laughs> see yes. I didn't know that oh that's amazing but interesting that you yeah. know that, that they pair a director I think because Kay you know is as a former actor is a director then that you know handles that sort of material oh, yeah and, yeah and i was so grateful for that because she didn't make us she just made us do it once we marked it through and then we just did it and we just filmed it and we just did it in one because i don't think any one of us could oh, have been able to bear to do it again i don't know it sounds a bit dramatic but i mean it's like it really you know, 16 years is a long time. It's a long time to play one character. She, it's a very interesting thing because she, you know, Hayley's like part of me, but separate. So I love it when they still talk about her on Corrie. I love it, you know, when there's a, you know, Roy looks at a photograph of her or something. I'm like, oh, you know, and, and it's like, and when she died, it's very weird watching her die because I love her as a separate entity to me, even though I played her. I feel I feel about her separately. It's a very, very strange thing. One day I'll, I'll really sit down and be able to properly reflect what that relationship is with the character that you played for that for that length of time, you know, and how much of it is you and how much of it is, like, you know, I'm mourned her, you know. Well, that's why I was going to ask, because I, I mean, I, I have a massive... I did Romeo and Juliet over the summer. It was only on the job, you know, it was what four weeks rehearsal, three weeks performance or whatever, and as soon as it's over, I have, I have a massive come down. Yeah. yeah. When, when you've been playing a part for 16 years, yeah. I mean, what do, you do, what do you do when you get up the next day? I know, I know, and it was, it was really hard. So I had a leave-in do. I, I filmed my last episode on the Monday, and, like, it was outside on the street. I was in the window of Roy's role, so in the ca the flat above the cafe. And it took ages to get this shot for some reason. That was the last shot that we filmed. 
and then everybody was waiting on the street and they all like went came around oh, I can hardly talk about it now cracking they all came around a corner like a hundred of them like cast and crew and um well, there's pictures of me I'm like I've got totally fetal I'm just like <laughs> there's like a small bundle <laughs> on floor and um that was on the Monday and then I, I took myself away because I'd, I'd also lost my dad that year so I'd lost my dad in the January and uh, and I'd had no time to properly reflect on that or or engage with that in any real way and uh because this storyline came then and it was huge so I um took myself to Lady Street just me and my dog for two days and uh and I took all my dad's old diaries and letters and writings and read all those and really sort of like sat with that and also sat with, you know, the fact that I was leaving this job. And it was really important that I had that bit of time just to go on long walks and just really take it all in. It was a real luxury. And then I came back and then it was my leaving due on the Friday night. And I was like, I was like 10 feet tall then. I was ready for it. You know, I'd like built myself back up and, and you know, the leaving due was great and celebratory and sent me off into the world. But I needed that little time just to sort of take in what an extraordinary year of change it had been mm. in my personal life and my professional life. And saying bye-bye to all that and saying bye-bye to, to that workplace, which, you know, is, you know, really special and really, a really lovely place to work. So, yeah. And you bucked the trend, uh, you know, you, you, you don't seem to have stopped working, I mean... It's been all right, yeah, yeah, it's been all right. And again, I'm just really lucky that people took a chance on me, you know, people people really did take a chance on me because I think that everybody wondered what I'd do because it was not just that I'd just been so aligned to one character for so many years. It was my age as well, you know, I was, I was 42 when I left. And um, that's not traditionally a great age for for women actors to, no, to get work. So, you know, it was also a bit like, mm, you know, there's not all that many parts out there. So it was it, it was a bit of a gamble. But I just wanted to be a job in actor. You know, I didn't I didn't want I didn't have any great I, I wanted to do new work and to do stuff that told stories that mattered to me, you know, and and, it, and I've kept my aim quite true with that. And then there's programmes that I love that I've wanted to be part of, you know, but like in Dream World and sort of, you know, like Happy Valley was one, well, as in that. Inside Number Nine, you know, yeah, that yeah. was great. And, and of course, ultimately, Doctor Who, which it was just a dream for me. Well, of course, because it's a Doctor Who, you, you, and, it, and I think he's worth talking about because we always see him on television being, oh, it's marvellous. And then when you meet him, Russell T. Davis, you think, well, he can't possibly be as nice and enthusiastic. I got an email from him the day before yesterday because he listened to my radio play and just took a bit of time out to say nice things about it. And you, I don't know. I've met, you know, I've, I've, he's done this podcast. Yeah. I've met him three or four times. Yeah. But he goes, I'll just spend a bit of my day yeah. telling that person that what they do is good. And he, and he is the most supportive person like that. He is abs. He just doesn't miss anything. He is, he is incredible. He is incredible. Yeah, I got a text off him on Sunday night saying, uh, all, all I want from my Sunday night TV is Julie Hesmond pulling her head off a robot. <laughs> <laughs> but he also texted me the day before saying, like, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. There's absolutely all on telling. But he's, he is, he's an amazing person. He really, really is. The, the support he gives to... Um, particularly writers but actors as well and he's he's a he's um 
is a real champion. Well, in fact, most of the times I see him is is at Take Back, which we should talk about before we over, which is um, is very much an initiative of yours. So, to, well, it's better coming from your mouth than mine. Well, it's, it's a theatre collective that um, a group of us set up um, a couple of years ago, and we do we do immediate response. Well, there's two strands to our work. We do immediate responses to social and political events, um, and so we do script in hand responses. So we we ask. 10 or more writers to to write short pieces on an issue, be it Brexit, the inauguration of Trump, the NHS, austerity, whatever. And then we'll do an evening of those. As, as you know, Toby, you've been in loads of them, um, which is brilliant. And, um, and then our other strand is we do more immersive and installation-based kind of work, which is... Uh, so we've done stuff on uh, the refugee crisis and stuff. And and um, and it's been brilliant. It's my lifeblood, is that, really. Mm. You know, there's no money in it. We're, we're not non-profit organisation. And, and I feel like what we've really successfully done is not change the world. <laughs> it's like, you know, because it doesn't really... It doesn't really work like that. But I feel like in these times, there's a lot of emboldening of people um, who want to create hate and division. You know, there's a there, there's a lot of people in positions of power who are giving a lot of credence to that way of living and being. And I feel like what we have really successfully done is set up a community of artists and people who are interested in theatre and art in Manchester to come together and be together in a room and to start conversations. We don't always agree with each other on the, you know, the the fine details of, of these issues. But what we all do believe is that a better world's possible and that being together is better than sitting behind our computers at home individually, just despairing at the world. And these I mean people have described our evenings as like healing nights, do you know, because you just feel like you're around people who are like minded and good people who have something to say and who want to use the talent and the skills to ask questions about the way the world is now and to try and like shift things a little bit, like Corrie shifts things and like, you know, on a much smaller scale. So yeah, so that has been a really, really wonderful thing in my life. And I've and I work with uh, Bex Harrison and Grant Archer with the three of us run it together. And we just kind of fell into it. We didn't really know each other before. And, and it's like one of those amazing sort of working relationships where if we'd have interviewed people from across the globe we couldn't have just found three people <laughs> who work together better we just we just get on and we just get on with it and we all have our roles and we just do it and we have a big turnover we've put on so many plays so many evenings you know we've, we've made so much work over the last three years it's been incredible really you know and we've got something else in planning at the moment and uh, and that has been that has been brilliant that's been a really brilliant thing. And Russell, yeah, Russell's written for us. He wrote, he wrote one for our Brexit piece at the Royal Exchange. And he comes along. And he comes. And he comes and he, yeah. comes and he yeah. watches. Yeah. And you can hear him laughing. Oh, you can hear him laughing. <laughs> and he'd rather be in. You know, Russell loves nothing better than sitting at home watching telly. That's, that's his favourite. That's his favourite thing. In it for all of us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that is a perfect <laughs> night, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he's wonderful. It's it, the conversations are difficult now, though, aren't they? I mean, it, it, it's one it, it, interesting how sort of a lot of celebrity endorsements of Democrats in America didn't work. There's yeah. a there's a feeling now that what used to be the sort of 
agitprop artistic underground are now characterised as a metropolitan elite. Yeah. Telling ordinary people what yeah. to think yeah. from their from the comfort of their towers made of equity cards and, <laughs> and, and, and anecdotes. You know. I've got one. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's and it's that and that's that seems to me a, f- a sort of fairly recent phenomenon mm. that that the elite are now seen as the sort of the lovies who are yeah. who are out of touch yeah. with ordinary people. So how? How do you change that? As somebody that's always been, I mean, I remember seeing an interview with you in the paper years ago, and it, you know, said, "What's you know, what what's your favourite thing?" And you said, "Mark Thomas," and I thought, "Oh, she's right." Oh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and so you've always been engaged, but obviously, when you talked about it at the beginning, you were building a theatre from scratch, and it was very much agit prop and underground. Yeah, yeah. So how do you bat off the accusation now that anybody sort of successful in the media? is sort of loftily telling ordinary people with real problems what to do and what to think. Well, I think well, it's just another way of silencing people. You know, it's just another way of, of making people feel like they don't have a voice and, and, and that they're not allowed to use it. And I think that that's why a lot of um, actors and people in the public eye are very reticent about you know voicing their opinion about things and because it's scary mm. you know and there's this world of social media now where anybody can get to you and and tell you exactly what they think of you when when you do do that i mean to be honest i've had, I've had relatively little flack for it um really weirdly i was thinking about this this morning because i was thinking you know that for, for somebody who, who does you know wears the political art on their sleeve like i do I don't get so much stick for it, you know. I do get a bit, <laughs> but I don't get. I don't get, you know, like some people do. And I don't know whether it's because um, that people can hear that I'm not from an elitist background. I don't. I think that might help. I don't know. Um, I think that I hope that people can see that I put my money where my mouth is. You know that I'm not just somebody spouting these things. I mean, what? I always cite the Russell Brand thing where where he says that, you know, he, he, when you're campaigning for a fairer and more just and equal society and you're in a privileged position, which, of course, you know, I, I you know, I dip my toe into being very privileged, you know, when I'm working and especially in my years in Corrie, you know, where I was on a good wage and, you know, having a, a, a nice life, you know, I would do better in an unequal society, <laughs> you know, but that's, you know, financially I would, I mean. Yes. But that's not what I want, you know. So when, I, when I'm saying that I want uh, a socialist society, you know, I'll, I'll say it, that's what I want. What I mean is that I want, you know, to be taxed more and that to be evenly distributed and for us to have a working NHS and, you know, a good railway service and good schools where our children are being treated equally, you know. that That's what I want. And... and I just try and keep very, very clear in that and quite and hopeful in that that that's still a possibility and not think that that well well saying that I want those things doesn't make me in any way radical or preachy or elitist it it's just what I would like to see, and I will do what I can in the way that I can, and the way that I can is like being a person in the public eye, and if I get the opportunity to say those things, then I will. And how do, 
How does the liberal end of the spectrum sort the difficulties that is as it has at the moment, where there seems to be all sorts of schisms that are sort of counterintuitive and yet make sort of sense in a way that, so, for example, trans issues, you would think, well, anybody of a liberal bent says that trans issues are that um, um, everybody is equal and should be treated equal. But then you have feminists saying, yes, but as a feminist who's fought hard for female rights, um, for for all women prisons to have uh, mm. issues because trans women have been you know it suddenly becomes less cut and dried yeah and and safe spaces come from a very good and honest standpoint but then you find people being no platformed and then so freedom of speech becomes an issue which yeah. again you sort of go well I can understand where that comes from in terms of it being an important thing that people don't want to be exposed to hate speech but then you get the thing of saying but then you're silencing people and surely that's what fascist regimes do and it becomes and suddenly the complication the conversation has got very complicated yeah I find on the on the really liberal side of yeah. the agenda and around Brexit as well around Brexit and the left and you know and the Labour Party all those there's so much division and it and it and it and it bewilders and upsets me it really, really does. Do you know? I mean, I, I look on Twitter now and people that I know that are in my world, you know, that are maybe not great friends of mine, but are definitely people that I've hung out with and liked are yelling at each other in really shockingly offensive ways sometimes across this divide. And these are people that, you know, are quite like-minded, actually. You know, mm. we're, not, we're, we're not at different ends of the political sphere. We're... we're very, very in the same world, and and it really alarms me. It really alarms me. So, I, I hear you. You know, I mean, for me, I am a feminist and I'm a trans ally. You know, and I find the conversations around trans issues now bewildering. I find it absolutely bewildering that this has raised its head. You know, whereas there's been this steady march of progress for trans for our trans brothers and sisters over these last years and it's only in the last couple of years that this is kind of I mean the gender recognition act isn't a new thing you know it's just putting some things into place you know that have been on the table for a long long time there seems to be this movement now and it's got really nasty it's got really really nasty and and I find it deeply shocking and upsetting that there's no there's no conversation there's no nuance and I heard a brilliant, brilliant programme on the radio uh, a couple of weeks ago where there was a linguist on. It was on Michael Rosen's programme about language. And she was saying that every time you turn on the telly now, you have, in the name of balance, two people in completely opposing positions shouting at each other across the void. So there's never any conversation. We're all shouting in, you know, 140, now 280. There's <laughs> characters, you know, trying, trying. And it doesn't seem like we're ever trying to sort of like connect with each other across that void. We're just shouting and insulting each other and, and making clear our position. And, it, and it's, it's so unhelpful and so counterproductive. But in a world where Donald Trump is in charge of like, the most powerful country in the world and that is his way of dealing with things that is always going to filter through and I feel like as artists and as people that are, you know who deal with words and emotions on a daily basis we need to be finding ways to connect with each other and so you will never find any of that stuff on my twitter feed you know because it's not helpful I'm not going to change anyone's mind by weighing in on these arguments, 
I'm, I, I will try and support groups on it, but I will not engage in on that platform. I don't believe in no platforming, you know, and I know that I'll get flack for that. I don't believe in it. You know, I'm, I'm with Noam Chomsky on this. I believe in always, you know, having the conversations. If we stop talking to each other, then we're absolutely lost, you know. But at the same time, this constant need for, like, to be on opposing sides about everything. And people just, like, sending little, like, bombs out on Twitter just waiting for a reaction and when it comes you know just kind of I just don't understand it and I feel like if you you know if you're a person with like thousands of followers on Twitter or as a, a public profile then you, you should be setting a better example than that I feel really really strongly about that we're always going to be have differing views but we need to we need to find the points of connection and the nuance and the grey areas, we need to reach across that divide rather than be just like making it worse. So, come on, you're one of the most positive and engaged and active uh, people that I know. Is is that it seems like dark times at the moment? Whatever side of the political divide you're on, it seems like the 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 country and the world is not united, and things mm. things are happening that you perhaps ten years ago people you predicted people would go, gosh, it's going to take a real dark turn. Then so. Uh, are you up? Is there still hope, Julie? I feel so hopeful. I can't even tell you. I absolutely believe that at the moment, it does feel like the world is absolutely crazy, but anything can happen. And, and that has not happened in a long time. And when anything can happen, good things can happen too. And I have the privilege of working with a lot of young people and being around a lot of young people a lot of the time because I've got young daughters as well. And I'm telling you now that they are sorted. There is none of this rubbish going on with them. You know, we just need to die off <laughs> and let them get on with it. Every single time I'm in a position where I'm listening to young people's voices talking about their hopes, their dreams for the future the way they'd like to see the world be. It is about inclusion. It's about not giving a toss about somebody's gender or how they want to identify, all that stuff. You know, the fluidity around all those issues is so inspiring to me. You know, I mean, Cucumber was talking about this stuff a couple of years ago and it feels like this is really how young people are talking about sexuality and gender now. So in terms of that, but also in their engagement with the world and their positivity, that they have a voice and that they're going to use it. Especially, I have to say, the young women that I've been around recently. They're just like, you know, we've got something to say and we will find our ways to say it. The thing is, it's not through mainstream media. I know that's the buzzword at the moment, but it's, <laughs> it's not. You know, it's through different ways. And, and we'll be surprised. They will keep surprising us, you know, by... By coming up trumps for us. I, I'm absolutely full of hope. I think that this is the most, the nearest we've been to things being able to be good. I mean, if you look in America, that's always traditionally, their candidates have always had to be supported by huge business to the point where you're just like, well, nobody really is ever going to be president of the United States that doesn't have the backing of these massive corporations that are running the world. And that's changing. People are doing it grassroots now. You know, people are going round and knocking on doors and getting a few quid and building movements like that. 
And it's happening here as well. You know, there are political movements in this country that are growing and growing and growing, you know, quite unseen and uncommented on by, you know, the rest of the world. But it's happening. And that's how you change things. It's like person to person, connection to connection. And I, I honestly, I feel, I mean, it's really easy to feel despair. It's the easiest thing in the world to like pull your duvet over your head and go, oh, the world's going to hell in a handcart. There's nothing any of us can do. I'd say just like, you know, check your sources. You know, hang out with the young'uns a bit more. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Well, uh, I, I've got the two, the two final questions. But first, I want to say thank you. And, and you know, I, it's interesting because a lot of this podcast, you know, I could have just tapped you up for anecdotes about Delil and Pasco, but I think we've gone to... <laughs> I think we've gone to more interesting places. <laughs> and uh, but I know this is a difficult question for you because by the sheer number of rubber bands you have on your arm with, <laughs> oh, no, with different, different causes and charities. Um, the, you don't get paid for this. I don't get paid or earn any money for this. The listeners do not pay to listen to it. But what we ask them to do for the hour or so's uh, entertainment that they've had and insight. Uh, we ask them to donate to a charity on your behalf, Julie. So what charity would you like to uh, nominate for the listener? Do you know what? Today, it's one of my wristbands. It's my most recent wristband. I'd really like it today to go to Mermaids, please, which is uh, an organisation that supports um, families of trans children, you know, because there's a huge debate around this at the moment and... These families who are trying to do the right thing by the children and trying to, you know, stave off depression and deep, deep unhappiness and let them live the life that they want to live. And um, it's a great organisation. I've seen for myself the work they do. So mermaids, please. Brilliant. And uh, we can see you... Uh, well, I mean, Take Back is always on. To, to Google that, everybody. But you're going to be playing Mother Courage at the Royal Exchange next I year. I am. Yes, yes, in, from February on. Yeah. So <laughs> this is the rare thing where we can plug something that's coming up. Yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, uh, and I've got a book out as well, which I'd really love to plug. So I've, I'm, yeah. I've, yeah, I've written a book. I've written a working diary. So it was from, from my 2017. Uh, and uh, it's by Matthew and Drama. And all the royalties from that are going to Arts Emergency, which is um, a brilliant organisation that um, helps a young working class um, people to access the arts and a career in the arts and higher education in the arts. Really, really important now. Otherwise, we're just going to have an arts scene that's completely run by posh people, mm-hmm. privately educated people, and um, they uh, they do brilliant stuff. So I've done I've done it for them, and it's uh, and it covers my time filming Peter Lou with Mike Lee. I know if you've seen the film that you might not think I am in it, but I am in it. <laughs> <laughs> I rehearsed for many months. And, uh, and also stuff that I did with Tate Bike. Um, and, you know, and there was huge issues going on in the world. The inauguration of Trump, the Manchester Arena bombing. Um, the, a lot of things happened that year. And I did a diary of it all and it's coming out next year. So um, please, please buy it. because it's, it's, it's called? Because it's called A Working Diary. A, a, a Working, working diary. diary, Julie Hesmondelsh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I, I mean, the fact that you fitted this in, when clearly you don't stop. I mean, you never stop. And I know you've got loads of other things to do today. And we've gone on far longer than I said we would. So oh, that's thank my you fault. for that. Yeah, well, just switch me on and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so the final question is an awful one, but it's one I've asked since the very first one of these, of which this, I think, is going to be like 247. Oh, I think I know what this is going to be. Uh, what's your message to the doctor? Who fans out there? My message to the Doctor yeah. Who fans. Oh gosh. All oh, right. Um, See, it's an awful question. Oh, it's really hard, <laughs> isn't it? Um, 
oh god well if you can take into the world that kind of doctor-like enthusiasm kindness non-violence connection then the world will be a better place so Go organics, go Hoovians. <laughs> I like it. Julie has Hesbrook, thank you very much indeed. Brilliant, thank you. That was great, thank you. I hope that was all right. Um, Uh, my thanks to Julie, uh, who gave her own time and actually came round to my house to do it and then was late for an appointment because we did so much and isn't she wonderful? And I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and thanks to Ian and Paddy and everyone at Big Finish who sort of pulled out the stops to get this out. Unusually, you know, with a very quick turnaround, we usually sort of bank these and they can just go up. So everyone's rallied around to ensure that we have this topical edition for which the charity Mermaids UK is the beneficiary. That's mermaidsuk.org.uk. Mermaidsuk.org.uk. I don't think I've said UK as often as that ever. Um, if you can give to that, that would be marvellous. There'll be another of these next week, um, probably with somebody who was 20 when I recorded it and has just turned 100, because that's how we normally do these things. Um, you've only got a couple of days left to listen to The Road on Radio 4 iPlayer or BBC iPlayer. Search for Drama The Road. It's on the new Sounds app as well. Um, so, yeah, you've got a couple of days to listen to that by adaptation of Nigel Neal's play starring Mark Gatiss, Adrian Scarborough uh, and various other wonderful thesps. Thanks for listening. Um, my other half is trying to open a tin of tuna and is being very subtle about it, so i better go. Uh, or I'll be, yes, or there'll be disaster at Haydoke Towers. Ta-ta! Thanks for listening. Bye! Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. The group have been doing almost nothing for years. Small-scale protests, not much more. Then Charles Harding came along. He was inspiring. He promised direct action, real impact, real change. I got a message. Charles was dead. We were all to lie low and wait. We're flying blind and the controls won't respond, so we can't get to the moon. We're approaching it blind and at full speed. Shayla Moss. Just when we thought Mother Earth was a thing of the past. Commander Nathan Spring of the ISPF. Why would Mother Earth want to kill one of their own activists? Chief Superintendent Priya Basel. If you harm my officer, I won't be able to protect you. With respect, shift your ass. Inspector Powell Kinsey. Armed police, stand still. Shoot her! Oh. Inspector Colin Davis. We can't get to those rocks without giving him a clear. Oh. Oh. Inspector Paul Bailey. Moon base is about to become uninhabitable, and there's nothing we can do about it. Nathan? Nathan? Oh. Come on, one of you. Nathan, did you get out? Star Cops, Series 2. Did they get clear? Tell me they got clear. Big finish. We love stories.